Locus Focus. I'm Parker Bernstein, your host for this weekly conversation about our place on the planet. Until a few weeks ago, it looked likely that Portland would be able to shut down Zenith Energy's oil train operations in northwest Portland. But then, without any public notice, Portland City Commissioner Dan Ryan abruptly changed course and approved the land use compatibility statement that the city had previously denied. This can allow Zenith to renew its expired clean air permit from DEQ and proceed to expand its operations. Today we talk again with Dan Sears, Columbia Riverkeepers Conservation Director, about the threat that Zenith's operations pose to our region and the latest efforts to stop it. Dan, welcome back to Locus Focus. It's great to be here. Before we start, you gave me a little piece of news before we went on the air that I wanted you to share. Somebody that's very near and important to the two of us and to people across the region passed on yesterday. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about Jody McCaffrey. Yeah, I got news, uh, opened my email this morning and saw news from the LNG organizing community that Jody had passed away and she had had a long battle with illness and uh, just wanted to say, you know, we're all thinking of her family and the community in Coos Bay for whom she was such a fundamental leader, an incredible whistleblower and just an extraordinary person. I just would want to make mention that she is one of probably the principal reasons why the Jordan Cove LNG terminal and Pacific Connected Gas Pipeline finally died last year, and I'm really glad that it died before Jody died. That's right. Yeah, she showed immense courage in calling out that proposal very early on for being unsafe and unsuited for her community and for people all along the pipeline route. If it wasn't for Jody, we may not have known about the Pacific Connector when we did, Um, and certainly Oregon would be far, far more vulnerable to massive fracked gas developments than, uh, than it would have been otherwise, but, but for her leadership. Well, as we talk today about Zenith, I think we can all be thinking about Jody and her tenacity and her intelligence and her, her vision, uh, because we need to all find the Jody McCaffrey inside of us to deal with what's coming on now. So let's talk about Zenith Energy for the umpteenth time that we've talked about it on the show. In fact, last week, we aired my documentary, Once a Braided River, which has a bit about fighting Zenith. And in that piece, we left it up in the air about what was going to happen. Because at that point, the city had denied Zenith the land use compatibility statement that it needed in order to get this clean air permit. been operating under expired clean air permit for many years. And so in order to get it renewed, DEQ had, had given them the requirement, thanks to you guys at Columbia Riverkeeper, to uh, have to, first of all, get the land use compatibility statement. So... Then, just a couple weeks ago, I guess it was, Dan Ryan, Portland City Commissioner, part of his portfolio is basically approving things like land use compatibility statements, turned 180 degrees from his position last summer when they denied it and agreed to it. So first of all, why? what was his rationale for agreeing to uh, grant the land use compatibility statement now? Fundamentally, their rationale appeared to be, at least as they expressed it through their website, that they thought that it was adequate in five years to have Zenith transition to handling renewable diesel at their unloading terminal. And they felt as if they would have the ability to inspect the facility in the meantime to ensure that it wasn't handling things in an unsafe way. I think the upshot for the community is that's five more years of Bakken oil trains hurtling down the Columbia River Gorge going 50 miles an hour that's five more years those trains going through Vancouver that just passed its own landmark ordinance saying no to major fossil fuel train terminals. And that's five more years of these oil trains rumbling right into Portland, into uh, the critical energy hub, through neighborhoods, 
right along the Willamette River, threatening to spill all along the way, along the Columbia, along the Willamette. Um, this is a deal that the community did not support, and the community didn't have an adequate voice in it. And so it's, it's really important for people right now to be contacting the city, to be pushing back on this, and to be demanding that they rescind that land use compatibility statement and go back to the position they had more than a year ago, which was to hold Zenith's feet to the fire and to find ways to stop this oil train traffic that's clearly so reckless. Um, I also just want to say right at the beginning that for people who've been organizing for years on this, uh, there's a quiet acknowledgement of their impact in this, which is a company, Zenith Energy, and its high-powered attorneys acknowledging that they're fundamentally ill-suited for Portland in this form, carrying oil into, into Portland. And we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yes, there was great legal work, and we want to acknowledge that, but it was also community pressure, people showing up in city council meetings uh, and getting the city to pass an ordinance back in 2015 that opposed, uh, that, or sorry, a resolution that opposed um, oil by rail. And here we are in 2022 with, you know, a five-year window now uh, of shutdown for these trains coming in. Well, one of the things that concerns me the most is our current city council. And I've heard Bob Salinger from Portland Audubon say more than one time in the last year, this is the least environmental city council we've had in over 20 years. So I'm wondering if that's a sense that you get, that there's uh, either a lack of understanding about the dangers that are posed by all these environmental catastrophes waiting to happen that Portland has been actually not looking at very clearly, except briefly in 2016 when it passed the ordinance that basically banned future any future fossil fuel infrastructure as well as expanding existing fossil fuel infrastructure. Uh, what has changed? I mean, there are different people in city council at this point. But in a way, I think I mean, Dan Ryan replaced Nick Fish, I think. And I remember when the initial ordinance was passed in 2016. Nick Fish was kind of equivocating about it. But I just wonder what's happening with the political climate that would enable him to do what he did. I mean, I think that we're that much further from the Mosier oil train derailment. You know, in 2016, in June 3rd, 2016, a train derailed not far from the Mosier school and close to trailer homes, uh, mobile homes, close to the river and but for the relatively calm wind that day, it could have been far, far worse. And it's important to remember just how close we got to a major spill and a major disaster that could have really injured people. And that's maybe less fresh in people's memories than it was then. And so the risk of oil train traffic coming down the Columbia River, the potential spills uh, into fishing sites, into communities, you know, these trains go through dozens of towns on their way in. That should have been forefront in the thinking of Commissioner Ryan, along with the risk that it poses right there at Zenith. Um, because fundamentally, that oil train terminal is not compatible with the city's comprehensive, comprehensive plan. There's a really strong argument that the community uh, would have been able to voice those concerns more directly, given the opportunity. And so it, we think it's time for the city to pull back that decision to open up an opportunity for the community to weigh in. And it was a broad-based push that brought Zenith to the attention of the city council. Um, Mayor Wheeler made many statements saying that he intended to do something about Zenith. And it's hard to believe that the best 
we can do is to give them five more years of oil trains. Well, one of the things that I find um, disturbing is the city and DEQ both have called on Zenith for a lot of lies. They, they lied about what they were doing. They denied that they were transporting tar sands oil, which it turned out they were, and they didn't do the required uh, protocols that, they would have, that DEQ required if you're handling tar sands oil. And they've consistently lied to the city and to the DEQ. And the city at one point acknowledged that. I mean, called them out. That was one of the reasons, I think, why they were denying the land use compatibility statement last August. So I just wonder, why are they believing this particular um, line that Zenith is pulling now, that they're going to be transitioning? I mean, five years, I agree, is too long. But even despite that, that they're saying that they're going to stop transporting oil in five years, and then they're going to be doing this thing called renewable fuels or renewable diesel. And how do we know that that's, that's even true? The city claims that they'll be able to hold them accountable, and ultimately that would have to be in a permit to be enforceable. And so that's one of the questions we think the city should be answering. And uh, you know, Commissioner Ryan, in his communication back to constituents who've been expressing concern about this, has expressed a really high degree of confidence that they can hold Zenith to um, the commitments that are expressed in the land use compatibility statement. I think that <laughs> the track record of the city and EQ holding them accountable is is not all that encouraging. And it doesn't deal with the more fundamental problem of having this type of oil fuel storage facility on liquefiable soil next to the river, potential spill risk going down the river, bringing in mile long trains of crude oil that is known to spill and burn. Well, I'm going to throw out something that might be a little irrelevant, but I'm thinking in terms of, of Dan Ryan's ability to track things, that I would be as concerned, if not more concerned about him being responsible for tracking Zenith complying with, with requirements than he is with dealing with homelessness, where he said he was setting up all these tiny villages, houseless encampments, and it turned out there were only six, and then one of them was in the floodplain of uh, Johnson Creek, and it turns out there's only one. And so, I mean, he seems to be a commissioner that is not very good at coming, following through with things that he says he's going to do. So how do we ensure that he's going to be able to enforce what he says he's going to enforce around Zenith? I think the city should have to stand in front of people and defend this and talk about their approach. And one of the reasons why it's so frustrating that they cut this deal so quickly and with little input, if any, was that the community wasn't able to ask these questions. Um, and that includes people who for years now have been pressing the city to do more about Zenith. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's going to take additional community pressure to hold the city accountable. I mean, it really reminds me of the case of the Pembina propane, liquid propane terminal that Charlie Hales, and I guess it was Dan Saltzman, I'm not sure. It was the majority of the city council was just going to like voice this on the city back in 2014. People just kind of found out. There was a little article in the Oregonians. I remember I was talking to Eric DePlace from Seattle when we both discovered this, this thing that neither one of us had heard about. And it mushroomed. And I know people like you and Jasmine Zimmer-Stuckey and other people like me, Riverkeeper really 
blew up the story and got it out, and people were just irate. And Charlie Hill said to me a year later when I was interviewing him that there was no way that they could go forward with Pembina because it was very apparent to him how much public pressure there was to stop it. He said there was more people that agreed that Pembina should not be built in Portland than agreed on the color of the sky. <laughs> so I think that's true about Zenith, too. I wonder how we get Dan Ryan and Ted Wheeler to understand, and probably Mingus Maps as well, to understand that there's more of us who agree about getting rid of Zenith than maybe would agree on the color of the sky. Yeah, I think that there's a deep lack of trust with Zenith, um, the greenwashing that they've used to try to paint their, what is essentially business as usual for the next five years. And then they switch to something called renewable diesel, which is for the purposes of flammability and toxicity, diesel. You know, it's highly... I mean, a train derailing with diesel would be a big problem, put it that way. And um, I think it's in part invoking the long history of these issues and the power that communities have had in unveiling false solutions. And LPG was definitely one of them, you know, liquid propane gas in that case. You know, that's the part of the Bakken crude that kind of explodes and is extremely flammable. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, I want to credit the activists in Vancouver with persuading their city council to unanimously pass an ordinance that prohibits things like LPG by rail facilities. And um, that accountability is really important and it's difficult to accomplish when decisions happen behind closed doors. That's the thing that was really shocking to me, that this decision happened behind closed doors. And... It's like we had this big public process, and then all of a sudden, this thing happens when nobody's looking. I wonder if you have any sense of how that happened. I don't, and that's one of the reasons why we're calling on the city to withdraw the decision and to come out to the public with an opportunity to weigh in. Um, the Supreme Court declined to take the key case right before, right after the decision, which essentially— This is the Supreme Court of Oregon. The Supreme Court of Oregon, that's right. Uh, Zenith had appealed the city's denial of the land use compatibility statement more than a year ago, and essentially the city's authority to make that decision was upheld um, all the way through the Oregon Supreme Court. So we're disappointed in what the city has done, and we encourage people listening here to work to hold them accountable as, as they will. There's more opportunities to get informed, to get engaged, to weigh in. Well, you're listening to Locus Focus on KBOO Community Radio in Portland, Oregon, Seattle Station's KBFG LPFM and KODX LPFM, KMUN and KCBB in Astoria, Oregon, KCEI in Taos, New Mexico, Radio Free Moscow in Idaho, and Radio Tacoma. And today we're talking with Dan Sears, Columbia Riverkeeper's Conservation Director, about the threat that Zenith's operations pose to our region and the latest efforts to stop it. So getting to latest efforts to stop it now that the city's allowed it to go forward, what can people do and what are your plans, what do you know of other activist plans to really hold the city accountable? There'll be more discussion of this. There's an event called uh, Rummel on the River in November where people are going to hopefully get get more people together and talk about what the next steps might be. But we're asking, or we're not asking, we're calling on the city to take back its decision and to seek public input on the path forward. Um, Given that opportunity, I think the city might come to conclude that five more years of oil trains is not not a good deal for Portland. So 
how and you say you're going to demand. I mean, what form is this going to take? I mean, I'm feeling very agitated about this. This has been upsetting me ever since I got the news three weeks ago. So what what kinds of actions are you thinking could happen that would really make the city reconsider? Make the city as worried about this energy against Zenith as they were years ago about the, the immense opposition to Pembina? I know people are talking about getting in front of city council and holding them accountable in that forum. Um, and I have no doubt that people in the community are organizing creative protests in other ways. And some of those things are still in planning. And Zenith has a long history of it. I mean, people have been pushing back on Zenith for, like I said, four years, including planting a community garden right there at Zenith. Um, so I think there'll be a variety of different methods used to call them accountable. The city council has been having meetings live again in, in the council chambers. And I'm wondering uh, how, what kind of form the opposition to Zenith would take now that it's not going to be on the city council's docket as far as we know. There's always opportunities for public comment. People can sign up beforehand and get in in front of the city. Um, and I think if the city's willing to listen, and so far they have not indicated that they are, um, the city should be out there taking public comment, taking feedback on this directly. And given that forum, I think they would hear very clearly what the community has been asking for. Basically, when Zenith came to town and the city was sort of mealy-mouthy saying, oh, we are opposed to it, we have to figure out what to do, we have to find something legal. And then the climate organizers and the community, and with the help of Chloe Udaly, who's no longer on council, unfortunately, um, put together a series of forums. And then the last forum, with the first five forums were held around the city, and there were you know, 30, 50, maybe 100 people. The last forum was held in a very large hall at the University of Portland. I think there were 1,000 people there. And it was a huge show of, of opposition to Zenith and support for the city to do something really active to stop Zenith. And interestingly, the city, everybody was saying the need to stop it, and they were really going to do whatever they could. And at the end of that hearing, uh, a guy from the Bureau of Buildings stands up and says, well, we're giving them their building permit because they, they qualify for it. And I have a recording of everybody jeering at that time and kind of in disbelief. So to me, that sort of shows kind of what we're up against. The city will say one thing, but when they actually act, it's like it caves into the fossil fuel infrastructure. Lofty goals, lofty words, and what you get in the end is mile-long trains of oil coming into Portland. And like that, that is unacceptable. Well, I have a little more specifics about the Rumble on the River uh, gathering that you talked about. What's up with Zenith Energy and the Critical Infrastructure Hub Rumble on the River Community Forum? It's number two. It's going to be Wednesday, November 16th from 6 to 8 p.m. Um, and it's at St. Luke's Lutheran Church, which is at 4595 Southwest California. And my notes say it's near the Southwest Community Center. It's near Gabriel Park, actually. And uh, good luck finding it on Google Maps because I tried. It's a little weird. But I'm sure hopefully somebody will put out better, a better map of how to get there between now and November 16th. But I think it would be a very important forum for people to come to. And I'm hoping that that can maybe start to generate some more energy. That's right. Yeah, that's the intention of that. And then I think part of that forum is also to take a bigger picture look at the Critical Energy Infrastructure Hub, which your documentary talks about in great detail. Um, and the question of placing large volumes of liquid flammable fuel on liquefiable soil. 
Right now, DQ is having a rulemaking about this, which is another place for people to consider engaging. Already, the oil industry is signaling that they are trying to use that venue to call into question Portland's prohibition on new large-scale fossil fuel facilities, complaining about it and alleging that it would get in the way of them doing things in a safer way, which I think was debunked through the course of the city's own review. Um, And so that DEQ rulemaking will also be important and will go out for public comment um, next spring, more formally. Well, there's a lot of concern about fossil fuel, the fossil fuel industry's greenwashing. And I think about uh, BP oil, which in the early aughts uh, said that they were changing their name from British Petroleum to Beyond Petroleum, and they were going to do all this solar energy development. And that lasted a few years, and then the next time they were really in the news again was the Deepwater Horizon spill. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's a great example of how much one shouldn't believe the fossil fuel industry when they say that they're going to do the right thing. And so far, it seems that the next right thing that they're proposing to us, the next gaslighting, as people are calling it, is uh, renewable fuels. I want to talk a little bit about what this whole thing about renewable fuels is, and then we can kind of move more down the river to another project that is of equal concern to Zenith. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of, there, there are enormous uh, variety of ways to make biofuels. Um, what's called renewable may not be as renewable as you think. Renewable diesel is a really good example. Um, you know, we'll talk more in detail about the refinery that's proposed at Port Westward, but fundamentally it would take unknown feedstocks, some type of carbon, whether that's purpose-grown seed oil, um, waste products, which are less carbon-intensive, preferable, and break that down, and then take the oxygen out, make hydrogen, and put that hydrogen in. And that hydrogen comes from fracked gas, a lot of it. And so when you call it renewable diesel, there's a really significant non-renewable component of it. And so we've taken to calling it non-conventional diesel, at least in the form that we're seeing it directly. Um, we don't have an umbrella position on biofuels. We don't have an umbrella position on renewable diesel. But the project we have that we're looking most closely at, that we're seeing up front, is proposed at Port Westward, a huge refinery that would make hundreds of millions of gallons of diesel in the Columbia River estuary. Um, and that is a real risk. Um, it's on liquefiable soil behind dikes that are at risk of overtopping. Uh, it's proposed by Houston-based Next Energy. And I think there's a parallel between it and what we see in the fossil fuel hub, Uh, a large amount of liquid, flammable, toxic fuel stored in a place that raises enormous questions about safety, about public health. And it's interesting to know that community organizing has had a huge impact there. And when we're talking about community organizing, we're talking about people really speaking up for the health and safety of their their communities. And it's when they take those actions, they can have really powerful upstream uh, impacts as well, uh, that they can protect something that's much broader than just their own community. And I think, you know, if if Zenith is shut down in five years or earlier, um, that's a win for the community in that somewhere up the line, that means one less oil train coming down through a town like Camas or Washougal or Vancouver or Portland. Um, so being able to identify false solutions is a huge role that the community 
activism and organizing is is having. Um, but it's a little bit alarming to see such bad ideas proposed and at times approved by local, state, and federal regulators. Um, things that seem to be so obviously on their face, questionable ideas, just in terms of the logistics and safety of it. And oil transit zenith is one. And you know the city of Multnomah County have made a lot of you know made presentations. They've been discussing how to get more of the toxic liquid fuel out of tanks that are prone to failure along the Columbia and the Willamette River. At least the spill would impact both. Um, and then when we look downstream at Port Westward, here we see a proposal to essentially establish that type of risk. A bunch of tanks on liquefiable soil. They had proposed a 400-car rail yard for this you know, non-conventional diesel facility to bring in feedstocks from domestic sources, whether that's animal fat or just as likely, maybe more likely, seed oil. Um, now, what's seed oil again? You think of purpose-grown gro- crops like canola and then crushed into an oil um, and that being used as the feedstock. So generally, much more carbon-intensive. The International Council on Clean Transportation has identified that devoting a huge amount of purpose-grown seed crops to renewable diesel will have sort of the knock-on effect of causing the backfilling of that coming from palm oil, which has tremendous impacts overseas and deforestation and land conversion. I want to get back to canola because I've mostly dealt with canola in terms of GMO issues. And it seems like it's kind of been the boogie, boogeyman of um, different kinds of oils. But what is it about canola oil specifically that makes it so carbon intensive? It's the fertilizer that goes into it. The, one of the key factors is, is land converted to, from one thing to another in order to make the crop. Um, and then railing it a long way in. There's a lot of steps of the process that go into renewable diesel that create carbon emissions. DEQ acknowledged 1 million tons of CO2 per year going into the atmosphere just from the operation of the facility. That doesn't look at the methane leaking upstream from using as much fracked gas as um, the city of Eugene, over 14 million cubic feet per day. Um, And it doesn't look in detail at the upstream impacts of what the potential fuel sources would be. And I just want to say about Houston-based Next Energy, their claims about what the feedstock will be are very questionable. They simply can't be trusted to verify at this point what they're going to be using and how. They've changed their proposal so significantly from the original project that the local community is absolutely organizing and pushing back, and it's starting to grow far beyond that. Um, There were about a dozen groups that weighed in. when the Corps, the Army Corps of Engineers, put out a scoping notice for an environmental impact statement that is expected in early 2023. And those groups were identifying these very questions. What's the impact of the feedstock? What's the impact of making hydrogen out of fracked gas? What's the safety impact on the community? Why would you put a refinery behind dikes that are known risks for overtopping and where local farmers have been pointing at places where water occasionally boils underneath the dike and comes up on the wrong side. Um, The mitigation project itself would flood close to these levees and has raised questions with local farmers and the people who operate the drainage district in the area that protects this 
large area, about 6,000 acres from flooding, and keeps water pumping out when they need to, keeps water levels at a place that are useful for irrigation for um, the blueberries, the mint, the livestock, all the other things that are raised at Port Westward. And there are residences within that area. Um, so the next refinery would propose to take unknown feedstock, break it down, hydro-treat it, turn it into a form of diesel, which they call renewable and we just call non-conventional, and then store that in the midst of this community. Huge volumes of it. We're talking about almost a million gal- or almost a million barrels of fuel and feedstock making over 700 million gallons of liquid, flammable, toxic fuel in the midst of the Columbia River estuary. And there's a bigger picture to this, which is, do we want to be introducing this type of risk into this area? You know, the farmers described the last earthquake. One, one farmer was telling me <laughs> in 2005, like watching a wave just roll through the peat soil. And they describe when heavy trucks drive on the dikes, which are also roadways in many instances, it's shaking their house. Um, and that happens now. Imagine the kind of construction, you know, Zenith is located on liquefiable soil. And here we have next, the next refinery proposing to do the exact same thing. And one of the arguments we sort of can point to, it's, even if you thought renewable diesel was the greatest thing in the world, why on earth would you put it in this sensitive location with these water resources, having to fill 140 acres of wetland um, in such a place. You know, there's a Buddhist monastery right across the road, um, the Great Vow Zen Monastery. There are residences very close by. They would have a 400-foot-tall flare stack sitting in the middle of all this. Actually, it's interesting because you said 700 million gallons would be stored there. That's more than twice as much as stored in the CEI hub here in Portland. There's 300 million there. So I mean, that's really frightening. But I also have to let people know that you're listening to Look's Focus here on Cape Community Radio in Portland, Oregon. Seattle stations KBFG, LPFM, and KODX, LPFM. KMN and KCBB in Astoria, Oregon, KCEI in Taos, New Mexico. Radio Free Moscow in Idaho and Radio Tacoma. And today we're talking with Dan Sears, Columbia River Keepers Conservation Director, about the threat that Xenos operations pose to our region and the latest efforts to stop it. And now we're moving on downstream to Next Energy's uh, efforts to transform uh, it's still a pretty rural area in Columbia County along Port Westward. It's a small industrial park into another kind of critical energy infrastructure hub like we have here in Portland. I'm thinking as you're describing the landscape around Port Westward, which is this amazing peninsula, right, that juts into the Columbia River right at the sort of near the beginning of the estuary. Is that correct? It's, I wouldn't. I don't know if I call it peninsula, but yeah, it's sort Point of, of a, land or a sweep of land yeah. in a deep bend in the Columbia River. And. I mean, it has this small industrial park, Port Westward, but it's or this, the Port Westward Industrial Park, but it's still basically a very rural area and rich farmland, and it's rich because it has such an interplay between the river and the wetlands that are what comprise there, which have been, of course, diked by the farmers, but which is very different from the kind of diking that would be required in order to protect a fossil fuel facility from all the hazards of nature there. But I'm thinking about what the CEI hub here in Portland was before it was an industrial wasteland. And I mean, it was this amazing uh, wetland, huge confluence of islands and and marshes and these two rivers coming together, the Columbia and the Willamette, and large islands, small islands. And it was an incredible farmland and was also very rich in fishing. And it was the homeland of 
for time immemorial, indigenous people. And then starting in the 19th century, a lot of immigrants from Asia and also from other parts of the world came and were living there as well. And they were all displaced when the city of Portland decided to make this into an, they call it an industrial sanctuary now. Basically drain the wetlands, drain the lakes that were there and just pave it all over. It will fill it with this non-engineered fill and then pave it over. And I wonder if there's lessons that can be learned in Columbia County looking at what was we allowed to happen in Multnomah County to go, do we really want to go in this direction? I think one big question that comes up is what voice does the community have in energy projects and the siting of what are being called, you know, climate solutions, but really are not, can be false solutions, and our communities being empowered to meaningfully alter the decisions that are being made by regulators, by elected officials. Um, in the case of Port Westward, um, I should say that there is a really powerful local, local organizing effort going on um, where people with very different backgrounds are getting together and pushing back against the refinery. And I'll just give one example. You know, the refinery came in and proposed that they would give the local drainage district $350,000 per year, and the refinery would have to okay the expenditures of that $350,000. In exchange for that, they would essentially have enormous control over the operation of the district, and the district would have to support the refinery project. Um, in three intense meetings in the Quincy Grange, local farmers organized, packed the house, in the, at least in the first two, and really pleaded with their drainage district board not to take that deal. And they didn't take it. They turned it down. And that was uh, a victory for community organizing in a big way. And part of what is pushing people towards this position of, of really strongly opposing next is mistrust. So who are we trusting is this other question going forward um, with these energy projects. Do we trust these folks to build, operate safely. And in the case of Port Westward and the Houston-based company Next Energy, the track record is, is appalling. It's very frightening. <laughs> um, backers of this company were involved in a failed biofuels facility in Odessa, Washington, left unpaid bills and a toxic mess behind that required a cleanup. Um, and who paid for that cleanup? I, at least initially, the cleanup came was led by state and federal agencies. The next place that some of these backers showed up was in Longview, where they were proposing a pretty significant refinery complex there that might have had an LPG component with it. Um, and the port of Longview turned them down because they couldn't verify that Next would follow through on their commitments. And then they popped up in Oregon around 2018. And at the time, their frontman for this company was Lou Sumas. Um, he has since been fired, um, arrested and fired uh, for child sex abuse in Texas. Um, taking over for him, Chris Eford, uh, now the public spokesperson most often for Next. Shortly thereafter in 2021, Next proposed, they had long told the community, we won't use significant trains. We're not going to be a big train hub. We're only going to have enough train unloading spots to really handle the processing material for our refinery, the clay, other materials. And then in 
June 2021, we see an article in the Columbia County Spotlight where Chris Eford is talking about bringing in a significant amount of their feedstock from domestic sources by train. So this was a big bait and switch. And in, in combination with this, they proposed to add a 400-car rail yard to this very large refinery. They're now saying it's a $3 billion project. And again, I just have to say, if you had $3 billion to spend, I wouldn't put it in a peat, deep peat soil where there's no bedrock hundreds of feet down behind dikes that are at risk of failing next to homes and a monastery, high-value farm. So that whole issue kind of stands on its own. But that big change in the project was, I think, a slap in the face to the community that they had been told one thing and then were being pressured with another. Um, and people in the community pushed back. The local land use hearing for that rail yard was well attended, and uh, it was two to one speaking against the refinery in the rail yard in those hearings. Um, and that's when Next disclosed that it was going to be a 400-yard capacity. They since tried to deny that, but it's on video. Literally, it's on video. Um, so that's a, that's a number that they've acknowledged. Um, just at the end of this last week, um, a coalition of groups, Columbia Riverkeeper, 1,000 Friends of Oregon, local mint farmer Mike Seeley, were successful. Um, we were represented by the Craig Law Center, and a big thank you to Maura Fahey, an incredible work on the legal front to win the argument that that rail yard was not allowed on farmland. So when they plunked this rail yard down next to the refinery, part of it overlapped with farmland. And under Oregon's land use law, that's not allowed. And so they attempted to call this a rail branch, a small lead that would connect one point to another. And the Land Use Board of Appeals saw through that, thanks to really excellent arguments from the community and from the Craig Law Center. And we were very proud to stand with the community there to call Next out for this big bait and switch. Um, Next has been trying to tell people that, you know, they had done this 400-car rail yard at the behest of farmers. And it's absolutely false. They showed up to town telling folks that they were going to use negligible numbers of rail cars and then they tacked on this huge impact, and now they're trying to say that it's just, you know, small, NIMBY objections. Um, but this would involve trains coming, you know, from all over the place, going through uh, Columbia County, ultimately through Portland, um, and a significant increase in train traffic. So it's a big setback for the company that uh, we prevailed on that Landy Sport of Appeals case, and it shows this combination of community organizing uh, creative, uh, creative actions, uh, different ways of getting the word out um, that it can have a real impact, particularly when combined with really excellent legal work. Where does the county commission come in with all this? Because I have the impression that in Columbia County, there's been a big push to industrialize Columbia County, particularly focusing on Port Westridge. So how is that playing out? It happens over and over. We're in, we're in a loop here where the port has repeatedly tried to convert farmland at Port Westward to heavy industrial use. In May of 2022, we won an important land use case um, where for the third time we were able to demonstrate that the county hadn't shown that heavy industry was going to be compatible with the local farming, the agricultural community there. And 
that also impacts water resources in a big way. These area, the drainage systems for the farmland are also connected to the Columbia River. And there was this sort of suggestion at the early part of next proposal that, well, if there's a spill inside the dike, then we'll just turn off the pumps, which is a really, really bad solution if you live inside the levees um, and rely on that water, rely on the drainage district to keep you from flooding. Um, so the bigger picture is that these local safety and health concerns and environmental concerns are getting brushed to, to the side while the county sort of keeps rubber stamping the port's request to convert farmland to heavy industry, to a rail yard, to whatever, and really little effort to find a more sustainable vision for Port Westward. Uh, but to their credit, local farmers, and I should say Jasmine and Brandon, uh, Jasmine Lillick and Brandon Schilling have done amazing work in working with others in the community as well to try to identify that there are opportunities to Port Westward, this super rich farmland, this place that actually has water for irrigation, um, that these are v extremely valuable resources in Columbia County, which is not a place with an enormous amount of great farmland. Actually, it gets pretty steep. The coast range comes in, uh, particularly on the north end of the county. So being able to identify that there are real solutions to some of the resilience and, for instance, food security, water security issues faced um, by farmers, that is, I think, a really powerful thing that's happening in Port Westward. And I think decision makers at the local, state, and federal level should take heed of it. Um, it seems to me that they need to elect a new body of county commissioners, which is what happened in Clasip County, because Clasip County was faced a similar issue back 15, 20 years ago with the advent of all these proposed LNG terminals in the estuary. And it wound up, they recalled a couple of the city of the county commissioners and eventually elected a county commission that was, that denied all the permits and stopped, um, basically led to the uh, demise of those LNG facilities. I understand that it's shifted again, and now there's Timber Unity people on the Gossip County Commission, which isn't so great. But I'm wondering, is there also electoral energy going into electing representatives in Columbia County that really represent the interests and the needs of the, of the people who live there, and particularly the farmers? There has been. Uh, I'm not aware of any races that are specific to Port Westward at the moment. Um, but in the past, there have definitely been this has been an active area of organizing, and there are two members, for instance, on the Port Commission who are elected in part to try to bring a little bit more sanity to the port's approach to Port Westward. And again, you know, the legal work has had to kind of be a bulwark here, along with community organizing, to hold back one flawed land use decision after another coming out of Columbia County. And it's unfortunate, but hopefully it will force the conversation about what the longer-term picture is. Well, you're listening to Locus Focus on KBU Community Radio in Portland, Oregon, Seattle Stations, KBFG, UPFM, KODX, LPFM, Camion and KCB in Astoria, Oregon, KCEI in Taos, New Mexico, Radio Free Moscow in Idaho, and Radio Tacoma. And today we're talking with Dan Sears, Columbia Riverkeeper's Conservation Director, and we're talking about threats to the Columbia watershed. Uh, we first started talking about Zenith Energy here in Portland, and now we're talking about Next Energy's proposal to build this massive renewable fuel refinery in port, at Port Westward, which is uh, near Klatskanai at the beginning of the estuary, the Columbia River estuary. 
We started the show by talking, remembering Jody McCaffrey down in Coos Bay, and I'm wondering if th- what we can, how we can use her memory as a way to help inspire activists here to be fighting very similar battles, maybe not quite at the same scale as the Jordan Cove project was going to be, but in similar ways of protecting our river, protecting the ocean that where the river flows into. One of the things that Jody did incredibly well was pointing out discrepancies in these projects and pointing out when what they were proposing was at odds with the things they were purporting to protect. And at that time, at the very beginning, they were talking about importing liquefied natural gas. Um, and many of those places we would have been importing gas from had their own energy conflicts and their own oppression where people weren't being listened to in the production areas and making those connections was a powerful thing. Um, so listening to community voices and actually empowering them to have a, a meaningful role in what happens with energy siting is really important. Um, and then acknowledging um, the bigger energy questions that remain unanswered. Renewable diesel according to the industry and according to studies from California, at times, if it's all renewable diesel, can burn with less toxic emissions in the communities where it is burned. So there's an argument for using it in places that are locked into diesel. Um, And so I don't want to ignore and just dismiss that there are issues that make this a valid conversation. Now, the Port Westward project has so many red flags that it should just sort of be ruled out. It's just an, an incredibly bad idea. And that was one of the things that Jody was able to identify at Coos Bay was putting an LNG terminal in a tsunami zone on a land spit. It's only a few thousand years old across from an airport with a shipping lane that wasn't suited to the tankers they wanted to use. Just one issue after another where the energy industry was trying to force a square peg into a round hole and that's what we see at port westward and again and again it's falling on community leaders community organizers and their legal advocates they're the folks who are doing creative protest you know whether we saw that um at the zenith facility in front of city hall when people would show up at city council meetings you know with um, a whole bunch of folks you know organized these streamers and so they were just colorful hearings and they really pressed city council to do something different um you know, at Port Westward, seeing um, people from the Buddhist monastery show up at hearings, you know, it's a pretty rigorous life living in a Zen Buddhist monastery and, and a big deal for so many people from that community to be showing up and speaking out and calling for a more sustainable vision. So when state and federal agencies make these decisions, are they accounting for the real, substantive, often common sense questions that are being raised um, and hopefully true, through the, what I'm, what we're finding through that is that people in the community learn to trust each other more and to work together. And, you know, that it took 19, 18, 19 years to fully stop Jordan Cove and the Pacific Connector once they pulled their own bait and switch and flipped from import to export. By the way, it was sometime in, I think it was in March of 2011 that the spokesperson from Jordan Cove called LNG export a stupid idea, and it was only a matter of months later that they flipped their their application with FERC to export. Um, not totally unlike 
Next Energy, which said they would never use large volumes of rail cars, and then all of a sudden are talking about 400 rail cars in the middle of farmland. So I think if we learn something here, it's that these local concerns, these local issues can be a canary in the coal mine for bigger problems with false solutions to energy problems. And carefully sorting these things out, um, it's going to take community pressure to make sure that our elected officials and our regulators are up to the task. What's the next move? I, I want to first talk about, again, about Zenith and what to do about Zenith, and then we should talk about how people here who are listening, whether you live in Columbia County or not, can support the people in Columbia County fighting next. For Zenith, um, again, there's the event on November 16th where we'll talk more in depth about how to put pressure on the city, what some of those creative tactics might be. Um, and then also to talk about options that are you know, look at the bigger context of the critical energy hub. Um, Multnomah County is, they've been doing their own risk evaluation work, and that's really important to be considering what what health and safety issues will remain in the community for as long as Zenith is accepting these Bakken crude oil trains. And then at the end of five years, what do you have? You have trains of diesel, renewable diesel in this case, but diesel that all the same burns and can spill um, with the next energy project, um, there are going to be some tangible ways to weigh in with agencies coming up pretty fast. Next was denied its Clean Water Act certification in early September. Uh, Next has falsely been claiming out there that they have all the permits they need to operate the facility. Uh, that's not true. It sounds uh, like Jordan Covey used to say that too. Yeah, they they mm-hmm. told Limit Week this, and it's it's just it's not true. They they don't have the permits they need. The land use permit means they can't make the criteria of their state permits. They don't have the Federal Army Corps permit yet, which is doesn't even have a draft environmental impact statement. So people are going to have an opportunity to weigh in. Um, and we think it's really important for people around the state to identify next as a false solution and potentially a replication of the error that was made in putting so much liquid flammable fuel in a liquefiable area and, and along the Willamette and right near the mouth of the Columbia. Um, so there's a a variety of ways to get engaged. There's also an important rulemaking where the state of Oregon is going to be deciding what sort of, um, safety measures and mitigations are required for the risks around large fuel storage tanks in Oregon. And three communities are most impacted by that. Eugene, where I want to acknowledge that the folks from Eugene made some really excellent points in in a recent rulemaking. Um, hearing where they were identifying really significant risks with the, the fuel that's stored there. So that's quite a ways up the Willamette. Where's the, is the fuel again stored along the, the Willamette? Up yeah, in the and there's, you know, there's upstream dams that they were pointing out where could be vulnerable in a seismic event. Um, obviously down in Portland, huge volumes of liquid fuel, toxic liquid fuel stored will DEQ and its planning be considering the full scope of what is this spill going to do down river communities? And then, of course, at Port Westward, where they're looking at plunking, you know, a million ba- barrels of feedstock and fuel on liquefiable soil behind levees and dikes that are vulnerable to flooding, um, to overtopping in a flood, I should say, um, amid drainages that are sensitive, critical to the local economy. Um, with a spill that obviously would impact a 
large area if something were to go seriously wrong. Um, they proposed to build an entirely new foundation, you know, to drive thousands and thousands of pilings into the ground. If you have to build that kind of foundation, you might be putting your fuel tank in the wrong place. It kind of reminds me of how they built the World Trade Center in New York back in the early 1970s. And they actually started building it in the 60s. And it was basically built in New York Harbor, which had been filled. And they had to put the the, uh, pilings down over 200 feet. I think it was even more than that. Yeah, in the case of Next Energy, there's really nothing to anchor to. There's no bedrock that's meaningful there, at least according to the local farmers, who some of whom have drilled wells hundreds of feet down and haven't hit anything in terms of bedrock. It's deep peat soil. It's why it makes it so valuable for farming um, with a water table that's very high. That's just right there at the surface in many areas. So one more time back to Zenith. So coming up, are there any city council hearings where people can come and start to testify about how they need to rescind this land use compatibility statement that the city uh, finally offered to Zenith? Well, that's one of the challenges is the city is not providing that type of forum in a more concentrated way for feedback on Zenith and for hearing from the community. It was one of the core errors they made in issuing this land use compatibility statement was not going back to the community and taking meaningful input. And so we're probably going to have to assert ourselves and get into those meetings and speak to city council and put some pressure on them directly. Um, Is there any way to appeal it? Are there any legal channels? People are investigating that and looking at that more closely to see what's what the possibilities are. Um, and I think we shouldn't have to do that for something that's, you know, we can point pretty clearly to this being a failure on the city's part to take in community input. I mean, there were all kinds of organizations identifying the risks of fuel storage and, and oil trains. And it's a really big judgment call to say that we want to continue this for five more years. Well, Dan, it's great to talk to you, even though this is a really hard subject. To, uh, We're in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah, I should say that, you know, one yeah. thing I want to say to everyone who's listening is thank you to the people who've been advocating, who've been protesting, who've been rallying their neighborhoods, their neighbors, going door to door to gather signatures in a drainage district to show that, for instance, where next we propose its refinery, a majority of the votes in that drainage district, not represented by the port and not represented by Next, do not support the changes that Next is trying to make to that area. And it's a significant statement from such a rural, difficult to organize place. And um, for Zenith, you know, it's it's a steep climb to try to shut down an operating oil train terminal. We wouldn't be having this conversation if it wasn't for the activism and the hard work of people, the organizers across so many organizations in so many years who've been pushing for this. Um, So uh, although we're not there yet, I don't want to diminish that people have made a real impact here. Well, we'll keep talking about this, Dan. I'm sure you'll be on in the next few months to give us an update. So thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. We've been talking with Dan Sears with Columbia Riverkeeper, and you've been listening to Locust Focus on KBU Community Radio in Portland, Oregon, Seattle Station's KBFG, LPFM, KODX, LPFM, KMN and KCB in Astoria, Oregon, KCEI in Taos, New Mexico, Radio Free Moscow in Idaho, and Radio Tacoma. If you're just tuning in and you'd like to hear what you missed or you want your friends or family to hear the show, you can listen to a podcast on our website, kbo.fm slash locust-focus. To hear previous episodes of the show or any of our KBU Public Affairs programming, go to kbo.fm or listen on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I want to give special thanks to the KBU staff who are doing an incredible job of not only keeping KBU on the air, but helping all us volunteers make the best radio possible during this pandemic. And you can help us if you're able by becoming a member of KBU or renewing your membership if you're already a member. We're independent, community-supported, volunteer-powered radio. Go to kbor.fm slash give or text KBOO to 44321. Or please support the community station you're listening to right now. Thanks for supporting community-powered radio. I'm Barbara Bernstein. My engineer is Ray Boswell. Next week, we'll talk with Julia DeGraw about the impact of the elections on the environment. Thanks for listening. We'll go out with some music by the band. Stay safe, get your COVID shots, and remember to socially distance and wear a mask when necessary.